and ask God to teach us. So pray with me if you would. Father God, thank you for this afternoon. Thank you that we can gather in a room like this with many others, lift up the name of Jesus, remember why he came, celebrate that, be moved by that, Lord, and do it in song and in prayer, even in video. Uh, And we would ask God that now as we uh, kind of think together that you would challenge us and encourage us and and help us uh, to make any changes that we need to make to become more like your son Jesus. And all of this, God, we say thank you and we we ask you to be our teacher. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk for a few moments this afternoon about a part of the Christmas story that kind of uh, often gets unnoticed. Um, it's a little phrase that actually occurs over and over and over in the Christmas story. Uh, and I think this year, especially if there is one thought, one phrase perhaps that God can use to encourage, uh, to come alongside and even bring change about in our lives, it might be this one. Uh, one day an angel came to a man named Zechariah, and Zechariah was disappointed because he and his wife, Elizabeth, had never been able to have a child, and they were now getting up in years. And uh, he was afraid that they would never have a child. That was almost a given. They would now never have a child. And as it turned out, he had also been chosen by Lot to get to minister at the temple. He was burning incense in the temple when suddenly an angel appeared to him. And we read that uh, he was startled and gripped with fear, it says. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Uh, On another occasion, an angel comes to a young lady. We know her as Mary, of course. And the angel says to her, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary's troubled by this. She's wondering, what exactly does that mean? And what what is that going to lead to? And uh, we are told that the angel says to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Now, in a similar way, uh, her fiance, Joseph, is also visited by an angel in a dream. And the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, And it happens, of course. Mary, of course, does get pregnant, and eventually she gives birth to a little baby boy, and angels show up again. We're told once more that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And you might wonder, well, okay, what would their response be? That could be pretty inspiring. Uh, Maybe their response would be that of joy, overjoyed or in awe. But no, what we read is they were terrified. That's what we read. They were terrified. Uh, But the angel says to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, all nations, all peoples everywhere. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, the Christ. That's a code word. That means the anointed. This is God's anointed king. Finally come, the Christ the Lord. He is the Christ the Lord. Now, what's so striking to me is when you read these little episodes, uh, you, you have to ask, why is it that every major character in the Christmas story is told, do not be afraid? Now, one obvious reason is apparently angels are a whole lot more scary than we make them out to be. Uh, you know, those little cute little angels. You probably have some in your house somewhere. My guess is real angels don't look anything like that. Apparently, it's pretty terrifying to see them. But in addition to that, 
I would suggest that something also was going on that first Christmas that really did mean good news for people who were living in fear. There really was some good news. The birth of this little baby seems like it was really a small thing. It didn't seem like it was going to change the world or anything like that. Certainly not immediately. When Jesus was born, nothing, humanly speaking, nothing dramatic happened. I mean, in in terms of people knowing about this birth, uh, not many people uh, came to visit him. Some shepherds later on, a couple of years later, perhaps magi. Um, But the claim was you don't have to be afraid anymore. Over and over and over, that message is proclaimed. And I was thinking about us in the world that we live in. This, this very year, in fact, you know, we have uh, what we call the Consumer Price Index. We have the Consumer Confidence Index. We have a NASDAQ index. Uh, I was thinking, what if there was such a thing as a National Fear Index, the NFI? Um, what if there was such a thing uh, as that, an index that monitored kind of the fear levels of those living in our nation from year to year. And I was thinking this year, boy, there's, there's plenty that could bring fear into our hearts and to our minds. There's the whole North Korea thing. Wow, that's, uh, that's a mess. And there's the, the steady stream of terrorist attacks, whether in another part of the world or they're happening more and more and more frequently here uh, in the United States. There's the Russian resurgence. Nobody knows what all that means. Situations in the Middle East, Iran, you know, Syria, You know, there's all the sex scandals going on in Hollywood, Congress, in the news agencies. Uh, Parents, you can explain that to your kids later. There's partisan politics. I mean, has it ever been more partisan? I I don't know that it has. Do you think the National Fear Index is going up or do you think it's going down? Well, you know, we could probably debate that too, couldn't we? And add a little more fear, you know, if you disagree with me. Anyway, but, but add to all of this, add to all of this what I would call real-life problems, problems that are very, very, very close to home. You know, I'm aware this Christmas season that right here in our family, in in this church, there are people um, processing illness, the difficulty that that presents, the uncertainty that comes with that. We have people here in our own church family processing the loss of a marriage, processing the loss of someone they love right now in this season that we call Christmas. We have people in this congregation processing loss of job. Uh, There's somebody also processing the whole immigration thing. DACA, what's going to happen? They came here as as a child, you know, brought here as a very, very, very young child. They've only known living in the United States, but what does their future hold? And so, you know, you wonder, can Christmas bring joy to a world that has so much fear and so much uncertainty and, quite honestly, so much pain in it? That's a pretty good question, I think. Now, understand, (laughs) that is the only world that Christmas has ever known. Uncertainty, fear, and pain. Every every year, every Christmas comes into a world that is just full of those three things, fear and uncertainty and pain. In fact, that is why Christmas happened. It really is. You know, we tend to sentimentalize Christmas. We make it about homecomings or gatherings. We make it about uh, banking snowmen and nativity scenes and things of that nature. When we do that, we really cause Christmas to lose some of its power because we sentimentalize it. But many of you know that the first Christmas happened in anything but a safe little world. Uh, the reason that Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem in the first place was because the head of the government, Caesar, had a new tax plan. Yeah, and he was taxing the empire so that he could feed his armies so that his armies could oppress the people right there in Jerusalem and the surroundings. Merry Christmas. 
What a great time that was. You may know also that Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus would soon have to leave Bethlehem, flee to another country, the country of Egypt, and uh, they had to do that and live there as unwanted aliens in that, in that place because another king by the name of Herod was trying to kill baby Jesus. You know the story, Herod had heard rumors about another king of the Jews being born. He wasn't going to lie down for that. He wasn't going to have that. And so he gave orders to kill, if you can imagine, all of the baby boys born in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Wow. Tragedy. Heartache and pain. Wow. I don't know if it could be more painful than that. Now, of course, Herod failed to kill Jesus, but many young baby boys suffered the loss of their life. Now, eventually, as you know, another Roman official named Pilate uh, finishes that business of killing Jesus. We'll get to that in a moment. The point is that the message that came to folks that first Christmas was not God saying, hey, good news, I'm going to make your world a safe place. I'm going to make your world a comfortable place. I'm going to make your world a place where you can feel cozy. It was, in fact, more like this. Hey, good news, I will be with you right here in the midst of your dangerous world. You see, when you're scared too, well, there, there are probably more ways than this, but there are at least two ways of dealing with fear. One, the first one is we usually think of, you know, changing our situation, making whatever scares us go away, right? Or go getting ourselves to a safe place. That's one way to process this thing of fear. Another way to deal with fear is to get help, uh, to, from a, get help from a, a power that is bigger and stronger than the problem that we face, right? Now, uh, <clears throat> many years ago, this was going way back when our uh, youngest son was about five years old, six years old, something like that. I took him to a Nuggets game. And we had good seats. We're sitting there. We're enjoying the game. But uh, I don't know, not too far into it, there was a, an unruly fan a couple rows up behind us. I think he was drinking too much is what was going on. He was screaming obscenities at the players, at the coaches, just cussing up a storm. Occasionally, other fans around him would kind of ask the guy if he would chill out a little bit. It was obvious that everybody around him was getting kind of fed up with him. But he continued to ignore all of us, right? At one point, the guy let loose just a, a long string of obscenities. And Graham kind of looked at me, my son, and I looked at him. And I had sort of had enough. So I stood up and I very politely said, shut up or you're going to get thrown out by security, you know, kind of threatened the guy a little bit, really ticked him off. <laughs> the next thing I know, he is standing up and he is insulting my mother, my family lineage, my looks, my intelligence. I thought, oh boy, I don't know that I really want to finish what I started here, right? Because I missed that class in seminary on dealing with drunken basketball fans. Wish I hadn't missed that. But this guy continued to insult me in some very, very creative ways until all of a sudden, you know, I'm looking up at him and he just stopped. He just stopped. And I could tell he was kind of looking just past me, right? And so I, I turned around to see what was going on back there, something other than just the game. And there was the biggest guy I think I have ever seen a couple of rows down. You know, when he stood up, he was almost my height. He was 6'7", he was 6'8", he was, I don't know, 295. He was just ripped, 3% body fat or something. He looked like an NFL player, to be honest with you, or, or maybe the son of Hercules, a Wonder Woman. I mean, I'm, 
uh, that's what he looked like. And he stood there kind of glaring, just glaring up at the drunk guy, like I'm sick and tired of hearing from you, right? All of a sudden, my attitude was transformed. Uh, I had new conviction and new boldness. And so I turned back around to the drunk guy and I said, yeah, sit down and shut up. We don't want to hear another word out of you or you're out of here, you know? Suddenly I was willing to bring justice because now it wasn't just me. It was me and Mongo. That's who it was, right? And Mongo made all the difference. Hold on to that thought. See, here's the point. On the first Christmas, um, in this really dangerous, admittedly scary and broken world, the message was, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And truthfully, the world today is no less frightening uh, than it was then. I mean, Caesar is still a disaster. I mean, that's my opinion, but Caesar is still a disaster. Herod is a train wreck. There's still tons of poverty, oppression, exile, suffering, illness. And last time I checked, death is happening all the time everywhere. We still have all the same problems. Nothing has changed except one thing, one really big thing, and that's this baby. You see, Jesus has come. As we were singing up here, he is with us. And that means that we don't have to be afraid. Let me explain. You know, there has always been this strange, very actually deep relationship between Jesus and danger and problems and brokenness in the world. Uh, you know, it was true Jesus whole life long. You, re- you understand he entered into the world, not in a safe little beautiful setting, but with people trying to kill him. That was his setting. His earliest years, probably the first five to 10 years of his life were lived in exile, right? He was an unwanted alien in a strange land. And then when he got back home, finally, eventually, he apparently lost his father at an early age because after the age of 12, we don't really hear anything more about Joseph. And when Jesus begins his public ministry later on, about age 30 or so, in Luke 4, it tells us that he preaches perhaps his very first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. And the crowd was so angry with him, they literally drove him out of town to the edge of town to a cliff where they wanted to throw him off the cliff. They didn't like his message. Jesus, during his ministry, was warned several times that other rulers and religious leaders wanted to kill him. John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, you remember, was beheaded, and partly that was to intimidate Jesus. It was to get to Jesus. Again, Jesus faced rejection. He faced poverty. He faced all kinds of misunderstanding, hostility, abandonment, betrayal, eventually execution. That was his life. His whole life was lived in the shadow of death. And yet he would say the darndest things. One time he said, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry. Another time he said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. So, you know, don't, don't worry if people are trying to kill you. He was saying. Another time he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid, he said. You know, there was a a time when he was with his disciples. He was on a boat out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and a big old storm kicks up, as they often do still today, uh, in fact. And the boat was nearly capsized. The disciples are panicky. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, we're going to drown out here, they were saying. And he says to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
That's the question. Do you still have no faith? On the night before he would die, he's again with his disciples. And he says this to them. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me, he says. And you just, you have to ask. When a guy's making those kinds of statements in the face of such danger and difficulty, you have to ask, what did this man know that we don't? Because it surely wasn't safety, yeah? Uh, Albert Einstein made an observation. Um, You've heard of Albert, he's a bright guy. Uh, He made this observation. He says, I think the most important question facing humanity is, here's the question, is the universe a friendly place? Wow, is the universe a friendly place? This is the first and most basic question all people must answer for themselves, he said. Now understand, Jesus answer to that question is incredibly profound. He acknowledged that the universe is broken. Bad things happen all the time to good people. Things in the universe are not as they were meant to be. But Jesus also taught very pointedly that the universe belongs to God and that God is going to fix it. God is going to fix every bit of the brokenness in the universe. That was a big part of Jesus' message. And that means, of course, that this world, your life and my life, are in God's hands. God sees. God knows. And here's the big thing. God cares. There's a friendliness to the universe, even though it's badly broken, because of who God is, you see. And what is more, you see, God has come to earth in Jesus. In other words, he's come from up there down to here. So now we get to see just how incredibly good God really is. The apostle John, who traveled with Jesus in his ministry, knew Jesus, knew Jesus' family well, uh, eventually becomes a worshiper of Jesus. He wrote this about Jesus. He said the word, that's a code word for Jesus. The word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, and I love this, full of grace and truth. He brings both. You see, God was never more glorious than when he humbled himself and came from up there to down here. God was never bigger than when he became a little baby. God was never richer than when he made himself poor for us. And God was never stronger than when he made himself weak for us. And the thing I hope you understand, I hope you know, is that God is so gloriously good. The Apostle John says that he is full of grace and truth. Those are two things we all desperately need. And you see, that's the message of Christmas right there. That's why we celebrate a little later, we're going to sing joy to the world. Well, why would we do that? Because there really is joy to the world that this one would come, Jesus, from up there to down here. Joy to the world. At Christmas, we remember that he came for you and for me. That's why he came. And even in the midst of whatever problems that we happen to be processing, he would say to us, don't be afraid. And you have to understand, this is not some vacuous Optimism. This is not a hallmark card. This is not a groundless reassurance. This is a claim about the nature of reality. Jesus knew something about the Father 
and knew that the Father was going to fix the things that are broken. And Jesus also knew that to be able to say, don't be afraid, it was going to, it was going to cost something. In fact, it was going to cost a great price. It was going to cost Jesus his life. He knew that. You see, Jesus came to fix what was broken in the world and what was broken right here in me and in you. And now he invites us to follow him. He says, come and worship. (laughs) Come follow me. And yes, he did say, don't be afraid. But if we're going to tell the whole truth about this thing of following Jesus, we have to say, you know, putting your faith in Jesus and choosing to follow him is not an easy path. I mean, there are even times and places where it could be dangerous. Jesus did say, if you want to know me and you want to follow me, if you want to belong to me, if you want to be one of my disciples, well, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross, whoa, and follow me. You see, from the very beginning with Jesus, over the beauty of the manger hung the shadow of the cross, right from the start. The cross was, in fact, Jesus' signature. It was Jesus' symbol. It was the most famous symbol, has become this in all the world. Not a manger, but a cross. And this is so odd if you think about it. I mean, imagine. You know, it's funny how hard companies and organizations, schools, even churches will try to develop their brand, you know, their their logo, their symbol, if you will. I mean, McDonald's has the golden arches. Apple's got the apple. Yeah, that's right. The Broncos have the, the demonic horse, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about how ironic it is that a faith with the frequent command of don't be afraid should have as its logo or its symbol, if you will, a means of execution, an instrument of torture, an instrument of death. It's like a, you know, an electric chair or a hangman's noose, only worse It's a cross. And all this because somehow, understand, it was on a cross that the suffering love of the glorious God defeated things like injustice and things like sin and things like guilt and things like death. You see, it's at a great cost that Jesus says, don't be afraid. It cost him something to say that. He asked everybody to do something that I know sounds really scary at first. He says, I want you to believe in me. I want you to trust in me. I want you to take up your cross and follow me. And what he's getting at is, you know, that means die to that part of you. That's your old, sorry, dark, arrogant, unloving, selfish, sinful self. Confess it. Own it. Admit that it's there and repent of it. Turn from it. And ask God to kill it and and to forgive it and to heal you and to transform you and to remake you in my image. That's that's what he's saying when he says, take up your cross and follow me. (laughs) And when you do that, friends, boy, I tell you, though, you discover there is life on the other side of that cross you're carrying. Real life, great life, full of grace and full of truth. It's a gift from Jesus. This gift has been changing people's lives for 2,000 years, and it just never ceases to be good news to people who know themselves to be in need of help, know themselves to be broken. See, life with God is actually a free gift. And once you've joined your life to Jesus' life, you simply have nothing, not really, to be afraid of. 
Even though you live in a world that's the same frightening world, the world hasn't changed, not yet. God hasn't fixed it all, not yet. But nothing, no enemy, not even death can separate you from the love of Jesus. That's what the apostle Paul said. And that's true for all of eternity. You know, Jesus would make these staggering claims. One time he said this, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Whoa, what does that mean? Well, I think what it means is he's, he's, he's not denying that your body's gonna die. Our bodies are gonna die. But he is saying that that spiritual part of us, that spiritual being, that part of us that thinks and feels and connects with other people, that part of us is destined, you see, for eternity, if you're following Jesus. If you, if you trust in me, saying you will never taste death. It's kind of like, um, again, going way back in my life uh, at a time when we had just three kids. We actually have four, but this is before the fourth one came along. Uh, our son, Ian, and we had two twin girls, and they were little, like he was five. They were like about three or something. And I used to love to take them to the community pool. It's a great way to babysit them, kill time, get a tan. You, know, you can tell I'm a real tanner. Anyway, um, Holly, my wife, was very concerned about this you know, one of me, three of them. And uh, she was concerned. She would tell me, Dwayne, you know, you gotta keep a really close eye on them if you're gonna take them to the pool. I mean, they're just little, you know, they wander around, they could fall in. You just gotta watch them like a hawk. I'm like, Holly, I'm a pastor. I've got advanced degrees. I can counsel people. I think I can take care of three little urchins and uh, have no problem doing it, you know, do it without traumatizing them and so on. So, you know, on the way over, it's a short walk from our house to the pool, I would tell the kids, kids, you do understand you could drown, right? You're three, five years old. Yeah, you could drown. And that is very, very serious. Drowning means you die. And I'm sure they didn't know what that meant. But, you know, I put the fear of God into them about this. I say, here's what we're going to do. When we get to the pool, two of you are going to sit on the side while the other one jumps into daddy. And daddy will catch you. And you two have to not move a muscle while the other one is jumping in. Well, actually, things went fine for a while. Uh, you know, I had put the fear of God in them. They knew drowning was something they didn't want to experience. And uh, everybody's taking turns. But, you know, as time went on and the girls got more and more excited, one of them kind of slipped off the edge. I mean, I just, boom, just slipped off the edge, popped right under, you know, bobbing for a few seconds, you know, not too long. I was right there. And I grabbed her and I picked her up out of the water. And she's crying. and Oh, daddy, daddy, I drowned, I drowned. And I said... <laughs> No, honey, you didn't drown. Daddy's right here. Daddy was watching. You know, daddy is strong. Daddy grabbed you. I never took my eyes off of you, honey. You weren't in any danger at all. We don't need to tell mommy about this. Um, here's the point. <laughs> there is one. This sort of helps to illustrate what I think Jesus knew, really. That there is, that when one trusts in him, they will never taste death. Not really. Because you see, the Father is right there. And he never takes his eyes off of us. He never stops caring. And when it is time, and we're all going to have that time somewhere when the body does die, when it is time, you know, it'll just be like this one moment. You will move from this world right into the next, and suddenly you're in the Father's arms. He didn't lose you. He didn't forget you. It wasn't that he wasn't watching. You see, this is what Jesus knew. The Father cares. Jesus knew that the Father is bigger than any problem you face right now or ever will. I hate to make this comparison, but Jesus knew that the Father 
was bigger than Mongo, right? Bigger than Mongo. So you do not need to go through life afraid. And isn't that wonderful? Aren't we blessed that he came and demonstrated how to live this way? Let me tell you this, though. While everything I've said, I I think, up to this point is true, this is also true, and that is that everybody has to decide into whose hands you're going to jump. Everybody must decide. Um, Now, you know, it may be that you're here this afternoon and you're not all that sure about the stuff I'm talking about, and, and if you're really honest, you're not even sure that there is a God or that God exists, and if that's you, well, you know, we're delighted to have you here, and and uh, if you really are asking those questions, I, I think the most important questions that people can ask is the question, you know, is there a God? Does he exist? And if he does exist, what is he like? And what does he think about me? And what should I think about him? I mean, I think those are the most important questions that a human being can ask and try to find answers to. Because I'm betting that there is something in you that believes, just like there's something in me that believes, there's, there's more than just the here and the now. There's more than just the material world. There has to be more. Life has to be about more than that. It has to be bigger than that. Understand this, Christmas, you know, Jesus coming to earth is God making himself known in flesh and blood. It's, it's Jesus revealing God to us so that we can know him, Know what he's like, better understand him, know that he cares, know that he watches. Because you see, again, in Jesus, we see God in flesh and blood. We see truth and we see love and we see goodness and mercy and forgiveness in the life of Jesus. It's all wrapped into one person, one package One great, great gift. Here at Deer Creek Church, we love getting to help somebody discover this, you know, discover who Jesus is and how much Jesus loves them. And uh, coming up in the very near future, uh, I admit this is a commercial, but I want you to know about it. You know, we got three things happening. One, uh, starting in January, the first Sunday of January, during the second service, we've got something called Growth Track, and it kicks off with a discussion of just who is Jesus? Just how does one become a follower of Jesus? Highly recommend that to you if that suits a need that you have. Something else we have going on is we have something called Christianity Explored. That kicks off January 21st. It happens in the afternoon. I believe it starts at 5.30 in the afternoon on Sunday night. And it's actually a a look at the, the Gospel of Mark, a very serious, sober look at the Gospel of Mark. And it's a place for people to ask questions, hard questions. It's a place for people to wrestle with what do they think about God? Is there a God? Can God be known? Is Jesus God? All of those kinds of questions. And, you know, it's a no-holds-barred kind of a wrestling match. I mean, nobody's there to make anybody believe anything. It's just a place to wrestle with grace and truth, the things that are embodied in the life of Jesus. And then another thing, uh, January the 7th, that first Sunday of January, I'm going to start a series, and it's called The Reckless God. We're going to look at the the extravagant, incredible, costly love of God for you and for me, for us. And we'd love to have you join us for any or or all of those things. In fact, our invitation to you is, you know, come and worship. 
Come take up your cross. Come discover who Jesus is so that you become a worshiper. It really is the best gift you will ever, ever, ever discover or be given at Christmas or any other time. Come discover just how much you are loved by this little baby born in a manger. Now, right now, I want to give all of us a moment to talk to God. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to bow your head. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just kind of bow your head. And, you know, if there has been something troubling you, you came here tonight and there's something that's frightening you in your life, I would encourage you to take a moment and talk to him about it. Jesus really did come. And he came so that you would not need to be afraid. And he taught and he lived and he demonstrated that there is someone bigger than your problem who sees and who cares. And so you can give your fears to him. He will take them. And if you're here this afternoon and you're in a great place, you're with family, you're with friends, you're loving what God is doing in you and in your family at this time, then I would just strongly encourage you, don't miss the opportunity to say thank you. The Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. It comes from him. And so thank him. And if you have never asked Jesus to be part of your life, if you've never confessed your own brokenness and sin, if you've never said, God, I want to belong to you. I want to know you. I want to follow Jesus. Friends, you can do that right now. You can do that right now. Just pray a prayer like this. Heavenly Father, I am broken. There is sin in my life. I confess this to you. I need I need Jesus. I want him to save me. I thank you that he came. I thank you that he died on the cross to pay for my sins. I don't understand all of this, not fully, Father, but I want to grow in my understanding of who you are and who Jesus is. And I give you my fear. I place my trust in you. Receive me into your family, Father. For I ask this in Jesus' name. And I would just say, if you prayed that prayer, you need to let somebody know it. You need to share that you've prayed that prayer. Now, what they'll do is, they'll just celebrate with you. They'll be excited for you. Um, so we're gonna sing a, a Christmas carol right now. It's a celebratory Christmas carol. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And that's why we gather to worship, to open our hearts and to prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. So let's stand together and let's sing and worship him together. <clears throat>